Welcome to Real Vision Live. I am the host today, Ed Harrison, here for Real Vision. I'm talking to Jeff Snyder, who is at Alhambra Investments. Jeff, good to have you on the show. Good to see you again, Ed. Now, Jeff, you know, you just told me literally like two seconds ago what your title is at Alhambra, but it went it went in one ear and out the other. Can you tell us uh, what you do? Yeah, I'm the head of global research at Alhambra, and it's it's it's, it's a pretty um uh, it's a title that's pretty appropriate to what I do, which is mostly research writing and the talking about these exciting topics that we're going to get into. Yes, including Jackson Hole. Don't let me forget to ask you about that. Uh, you know, uh, the backdrop to our conversation right now is some serious uh, market volatility. Uh, we, we see the Nasdaq down almost 5% as we uh, started talking. Uh, what's your, what do you make of what's going on in the markets? Can you contextualize it uh, in terms of what you've been writing over the past month or so? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people agree that the market's kind of gotten way ahead of itself, or at least the way ahead of where the current economy and the current situation is now. And obviously, people in the stock market that are betting that things will, you know, whatever happened earlier this year in terms of COVID and the shutdowns and the economic dislocation will simply fade away. And that by, you know, a reasonable amount of time, hopefully early next year, things will be right back to normal again. And so I think that's been the driving narrative, driving stocks higher and higher as we've gone uh, throughout this year. But more and more, we're starting to see a lot of concerns about, okay, is that really the case? Is it going to be so easy that we turned everything off? We had all sorts of financial problems in March. Can we really get back to back to even or back to level or even close to it so simply and so pain-free as the stock market seems to get? And so we would expect, even along the way, that there would be periods where people in the market, bulls in the market, or anybody buying stocks might, be, might, might take a pause and wonder, okay, are things really proceeding the way that we hope that they are? I think today's probably a good day for that, and it's probably – you know, it, it's appropriate given where things have been over the last couple of weeks, which are, you know, there's a lot of, of contrary signals that say, hold on a minute here. Yes, things are reopening, things are getting better, but that might not necessarily mean the same thing is going right back to normal pain-free and easily. And, you know, when you say that, I, 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 I want to pivot in two possible directions, real economy and the Fed. But I, I can't help but move to the Fed immediately because, uh, as I was telling you right before we came on, you have this great depiction of of uh, how the Fed acts. You know, it's what I would call a little bit of hocus pocus going on with the Fed and what they talked about at Jackson Hole. So I think this is a good place for us to talk about the Fed and and Jackson Hole because really a lot of what you're talking about depends upon how people are thinking about the Fed's magical powers to make things happen in the economy. Uh, and my understanding is you don't think that those powers are as magical as a lot of other people think that they are. Can you talk to me about what the Fed is doing now, uh, now that it's talked about average inflation targeting uh, at Jackson Hole and really how effective that policy can be? Well, it's, it's it's somewhat of a joke in my mind because, look, the, the Fed only does expectations policy. We think the, we think of a central bank as a bank. We think it has a printing press and it does monetary policy, money in monetary policy. In fact, the, the Fed does have the, the you know the accounting for bank reserves and all these other monetary sounding programs. But in reality, what the Fed does is it tries to get you and me to do its job for it. And the reason is very simple because a very long time ago, the Federal Reserve and indeed any economist and any person in the marketplace was unable to no longer define money. We couldn't tell what you know the banking system was using, what forms of liabilities and assets the banking system was using, which were being used in the real economy to achieve monetary goals. So this was you know 1960s and 1970s. So as a central bank, what do you do if you can't define and measure money? You obviously can't intervene in the money, in the money supply directly because you don't know what it is. So what the Fed had turned to was something called expectations policy, which was essentially a set of ideals and principles which said they didn't have to know all the details of the monetary system. What they would do instead was signal to the banking system and let the banking system figure out all the complex details. So if you know Alan Greenspan lowered the federal funds rate, that was a signal to the banking system and to the real economy too, the Fed was being quote unquote accommodative. That would be inflationary. It would be helpful to the real economy. 
Now, we were never supposed to ask questions about, well, how does that actually happen? How does lowering the federal funds rate actually stimulate activity? In fact, it really doesn't. But it was, again, it's expectations. So long as people believe when the Fed lowers an interest rate, that stimulus, the Fed believes that that actually is stimulus because people will begin acting in a way that creates the activity that leads to better economic outcomes. So really what the Fed did at Jackson Hole was a continuation of their expectations policy, which hasn't lived up to the billing ever since the first global financial crisis uh, 12, a dozen years ago. And essentially, when you boil it down, what happened was their inflation mandate is to hit their 2% target, which became an explicit target in January of 2012. But for the last decade, they haven't been able to achieve it. And so they've kind of tried to figure out, you know, what's going on here? Why can't we hit our inflation target? We're the central, you know, we're the Federal Reserve. Damn it, we should be able to do this. And they can't do it. And so they keep going back to expectations. Well, why aren't expectations uh, being fulfilled in the way that they're supposed to be fulfilled? And what they've settled on is that the Fed has done too good of a job with monetary policy. Because everybody knows from the 1970s forward, the Fed is an inflation fighter. Central banking is an inflation fighter. And so what they've surmised is, oh, that's what got in the way. Every time inflation started to creep up toward 2%, because the entire markets believe in the Fed and believe it's an inflation fighter, they believe that the 2% target was actually a ceiling. That's what, the, that's what Jay Powell was talking about at Jackson Hole. So how does the Fed then get expectations to go above the ceiling? Well, they say well, our inflation target is symmetrical or we're going to average our inflation target over the long run. So we're going to overcome people's objections and expectations that the central bank is an inflation fighter. That's what they believe has been holding them back for a decade. The Fed is too good at its inflation fighting job. And now they want you to know, oh, we're not going to be as much of an inflation fighter as we used to be. And it's, you know, it is patently absurd. Yeah, that is interesting, I have to say. Um, you know, it definitely uh, is a completely different paradigm. And as you say, it, I think about some of the things that we were talking about uh, four or five years ago, because the truth of the matter is, is, is that uh, there was that conversation when people were saying, wait a minute, you know, 2%, why are you raising interest rates right now in 2015, 16, when you haven't even hit your inflation target? Is 2% a ceiling? Uh, uh, now, you know, uh, we, we got to back off. I mean, how does that, how does it really work, though? I mean, well, this whole expectations game and the real economy, because I think of the Fed as more of a, um, a, a financial economy actor and not a real economy actor. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it's supposed to be a financial economy actor, which predictably spills over into the real economy. They, you know, they they think they have this down. They have these elegant DSGE models, which which basically do what you just said, Ed, which is they say we we act that we we signal to the financial economy, and then therefore it, it, it creates activity in the real economy in the manner in which we expect it to happen. So long as those signals are perceived in the way they're supposed to be perceived, it should work elegantly. But as we know from the inflation target shortfall over the last decade, it hasn't worked the way it's supposed to. And that's what has led to this grand strategy review. And this grand strategy review, which they unveiled at Jackson Hole, is not something they just came up with this year either. This has been in the works since November of 2018. So for the last year and a half, almost two years, they've been, they've been supposedly taking apart every aspect of what the Federal Reserve does and trying to come up with a way to actually succeed at their inflation mandate. Because they realize they become, not only have they been short in the inflation mandate, what does it mean to be in short in the inflation mandate is also the economy hasn't lived up to what it's supposed to have done either. That's the, really the big message that's implicit in all of this stuff. If things had been going the way they said they were going, the economy was recovering, healing, the unemployment rate was an accurate view of the economy, we wouldn't have never, they never would have needed this grand strategy review to begin with. So that's the implicit background is that monetary policy has failed. And what they came up with as an answer for why it failed, this average inflation target, that's not something new either. They added the word symmetric to their inflation goal all the way back in May of 2018. So for the last couple of years, they've been doing this stuff already. And as you might have noticed, inflation has fallen, not risen. So, right. you know, it's it, again, it gets, you know, it's, it's really they're just spinning their wheels to avoid making the most obvious connection, the most obvious uh, admission, which is monetary policy. If people don't believe in the signals, it's worthless. It's useless. It's irrelevant. And that's really when you go, look, how can you miss your inflation target for a decade? 
Well, as if all you're doing is doing these self-fulfilling prophecy signals and the market stops believing in them, what would you expect to happen, right? I mean, it, it's, it's pretty easy and intuitive. And, and, you know, when people say uh, you're turning Japanese, in this sense, actually, I think this is the closest that we can get to the concept of turning Japanese. And when I, when I say that, I think of it from um, the paradigm uh, where I was saying about the financial economy. Um, I want to introduce a term, endogenous money, to, to talk about this. Because when I think of the Fed, I think of the Fed as the monopoly supplier of reserves. That's the base of the monetary base. But they have no direct control over the lending that banks do or any of the other uh, credit activities that you were talking about they, that they can't explain whether that's money or not money. And so once uh, that whole financial um, uh, soup uh, is, is, um, is created, it can then therefore have an influence on what happens in the real economy. You know, more credit, uh, real economy going up. But the Fed is not controlling uh, that, that whole stack within the banking system because of the concept of endogenous money, the fact that when a bank um, creates a loan, they also create a deposit. I mean, uh, essentially, the Fed is only, uh, you know, they're only controlling a very small sliver of the credit in, in the system. Yeah, and I would take that one step further, Ed. I, what I argue is that bank reserves aren't even uh, aren't even part of the monetary system itself. What I say is bank reserves are entirely irrelevant because they're simply an asset swap with a central bank. So I'm basically saying the same thing that you are, but but downgrading bank reserves a step further because the end result is the same. And I think we both agree on that is that the Federal Reserve acts like it controls everything, but we keep seeing time and time again, year after year. All the things they keep promising that will happen never happen. And so you have to stop and think, well, why do these things not happen? And what the Fed has done under this grand strategy review is said, we're going to avoid every we're going to avoid all the evidence that points only in the, the one direction, which is we're powerless and irrelevant, and try to come up with all of these reverse engineered expect or ex, uh, 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 excuses for why we're not irrelevant because we we have to be, right? I mean, they're starting with the premise and then moving backwards from it and trying to fit evidence into it, which is the exact opposite of what scientific endeavors are supposed to be. Well, you know, let's uh, flip over to the real economy then, and we can get back to the interaction of the Fed once we start looking forward. Um, I think you made some interesting comments with regard to uh, what I would call slack in, in the economy, because uh, you alluded to the concept that during the aftermath of the great financial crisis, the Fed was saying, you know, we have 3.5 percent unemployment, uh, all these things are happening. But the reality might have been that there was more slack in the economy. Um, what was going on in the aftermath of the great financial crisis up until the pandemic from a real economy perspective? Well, you know, I think people, most people are, are aware of the participation problem, which is that the unemployment rate has, is a faulty signal because of a lot of, you know, potentially tens of millions of, of former workers who have been excluded from the denominator. And there are all sorts of reasons, and there are all sorts of valid reasons why they haven't shown up in the, in the denominator of the unemployment rate, which if they had would have shown that the, the, the unemployment rate, the true unemployment rate, was much higher. And there are, there are different forms of the unemployment, obviously, you know, get up to U5 and U6 and things like that. But the idea is simply that the major unemployment rate has not been an accurate reflection on the real economy. Because if it had been, then we would have seen the inflationary burst driven through wages in 2017, 2018, and 2019 that the uh, Federal Reserve officials kept promising. They kept expecting that that would happen because they wanted to believe the unemployment rate was an accurate picture of the economy. And the reason was simple, because if you believe monetary policy worked, and then it didn't work for a long time, but you still believed it worked, then your answer was, well, we just needed to give it more time, more time, more time, and it'll eventually work. And the unemployment rate, by going down and down and down, seemed to validate that approach. It said, okay, we've given enough time, all this QE stuff does actually work, but it needed to be corroborated by inflation. And so that's where everything started to go wrong in 2017 and 2018, because the unemployment rate went down well below where we thought full employment was. Therefore, that should have been the trigger for these inflationary pressures that Jay Powell was always talking about, but they never happened. And again, that's implicit in this grand strategy review, is the Fed is now admitting two years after the fact, three years after the fact, it didn't happen. 
And so why didn't it happen? What's wrong with the unemployment rate? Well, our answer, I think the most intuitive and honest answer is that the global financial crisis in 2008-2009 so severely harmed the economy, it pushed a significant segment of the American workforce completely out of it. We have all the data for it. We have the labor for the first time in post-war history. We have all sorts of you know, anecdotal evidence. We have all sorts of uh, statistics that say the labor force itself was harmed greatly by a monetary crisis. But you can also see why the Fed doesn't want to go down that road, because then you're going to say, well, wait a minute, if the monetary crisis caused all this labor, this long-term structural problem in the labor market, they might blame the Fed. And so that's why they've hung on to this unemployment rate view for as long as they have, because it validates that, oh, no, it wasn't our fault. We, and if it was, we fixed it. But again, you know, where was the inflation? What happened? The, the unemployment rate instead proved to be wrong. Well, you know, that takes us up to the recent past because, you know, that's that's the, you know, the latter part of the last business cycle, 2017, 18, 19, getting us down to 3.5 percent. And then, bang, suddenly we're, we get hit by this, uh, you know, 100-year storm of a pandemic. And now we see, in, uh, you know, the worst levels of unemployment we've had since the Great Depression. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the NASDAQ up until today was at record levels, people were saying, you know, we're on the mend. What, what do the data actually say? What do the, the, the real economy data say to you about where we are right now? Well, if we look at the major payroll reports, what they're saying, all that they're saying is that the economy has been reopened. That's where the, you know, those, these gigantic positive numbers are not necessarily saying that you know, things are getting better. It's simply that we ended the shutdowns. We started to reopen, and, and millions of workers who were prevented from working for a long time simply went back to work. That's all it says. Now, what, we're, what, the, the, what the stock market is extrapolating from that is that will be the first step toward what, what will be the far more, far more important second step, which is completing the process. Meaning that, OK, we, we, you know, 25, 30 million, whatever the total actually might might have been, however many millions of workers were thrown out or prevented from working, each and every one of them will get to go back to work and go back to like like everything was normal in as soon as as small a period of time as possible. But what we've seen since then and throughout that period is that, OK, yes, millions of workers who were prevented from working went back to work because they were allowed to go back to work. However, jobless claims says that the layoffs and labor cutting and cost management in the business sector continues to be an enormous problem and an enormous drag. And if jobless claims is anywhere close to accurate, then that means that we are not going to get anywhere near getting everyone back to work. And that's a huge problem because, I mean, we just talked about the participation problem where for a decade we had this hidden slack in unemployment. What happens if we now add a quite visible, obvious pool of slack, enormous pool of slack on top of the one that was existing? It's going to be an even worse economic drag. And I think what I think a lot of people are missing is that even economists at the Fed and the CBO and all these other places, uh, these, econ these economics um, groups, they realize that the economy is not going to go right back to normal either. And so all of the mainstream uh, projections, which come from these DSG models, are still saying that we'll be lucky to get back to even by 2022, if not later. So I think even the most optimistic of optimists, which are these mainstream models, are saying, wait a minute here. We don't think it's going to go so smoothly. We hope it does, but we don't think, you know, even by the end of next year, we're going to be even close to even again, which if you stop and look at it and compare it to 2008, 2009, that would be worse than the Great Recession. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was going to get there uh, because uh, that's how I'm thinking about it right now. Uh, I saw the uh, uh, initial jobless claims that came out today. I had some commentary about it onto Twitter. And this is how I was thinking about it. Um, first of all, I'm thinking uh, that the uh, NBER got in there pretty early and said that we're in a recession already. That was earlier than you would ever expect them to get in there. But, you know, the magnitude of the downdraft was so large that they basically were forced to do so. But the number that we're about to get for Q3 is going to be incredibly large on the upswing as well. So potentially, uh, they might even say that it was a very short recession and we're already out of it. And so then I'm thinking to myself, um, 
okay, uh, but then what comes next in terms of are we going to uh, totter along? Is there a double dip, et cetera? And that's where the initial jobless claims come into play. You were talking about 2008-9. I looked at the jobless claims in 2009 from March to, say, September, and we were looking at like 500 to 600,000 jobless claims a, 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 a week. This is after we supposedly uh, were out of recession. And so the, the unemployment number was actually going up during that period of time. Right now, we have 800,000 jobless claims, so a level that's you know, 30, 40 percent higher than the numbers that we had before. And so the immediate thought I have is that's worse. Yeah. Uh, is it so well, much worse. worse that you, you you could see the rolling over move into a negative uh, uh, GDP print territory at some point in time? Or are you thinking uh, we'll just keep on chugging along at a very uh, poor rate? In my mind, it's, it almost doesn't matter if we have any more negative GDPs because we already had the one and the one was enormous. So in other words, whether the NBER comes in and says, you know, you're right, Ed, because Q3 GDP is going to be enormously positive. But that's not a surprise, because it, just like Q2 was not a surprise that it was an enormously negative. What really matters is Q4 moving forward. And in my mind, if Q4 is negative or slightly positive, those two are the same thing. Because unless Q4 is likewise massively positive, if it follows Q3 in the same kind of manner, if, it falls, if anything short of that, we're stuck. We're into the situation where we're going to be well, well below where we were at the peak, which was Q4 2019, by the way. So if we stay below Q4 2019 for any lengthy period of time, that's going to lead to all of these these negative second and third order effects. So, you know, we've we're already in the recession. The question is, do we get out of it? So I, I think that's the most important question. And the, and the real the reality of it is that we can have nothing but plot positive GDP reports from here on and we'll still be in recession. Right. Whether the NBER declares it or not, that in the real economy, in the way it's really going down in the real world, if we don't get back to where we were quickly, we're still in recession. And that's 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 the huge problem that we're going to have to deal with because we never really recovered from the last one in 2008, 2009. And the reason why is, as you just pointed out, the labor market was so – there was so much upheaval in the labor market. It was so damaged. It didn't actually bottom out until the middle of 2010 before it finally started to stabilize and recover. And we've had nothing but enormous problems ever since, as the Fed is implicitly admitting now with its grand strategy review. So to go, go through something like that again, where GDP is positive, but it's not really recovery, I mean, that's the worst of the worst cases in my mind. So um, yeah, I know people want to focus on, are we going back into recession or not? You know, is there going to be more negative numbers? In my view, in my analysis, it doesn't matter. We're already in the recession. We've already got it. Everything is now about how do we get out of it, or do we get out of it? Right. Yeah. You know, how do we and do we? And yeah, I want I want to talk yeah. about that with a little. Um, uh, maybe you can give us an explainer before we get there, because I was just looking at your post on uh, ISM. You know, the ISM was at fifty six, and I I think you said this in the post. You know, fifty six is well above fifty, but let's be honest, fifty six. This is a dispersion index, right? So a 56 is not a really big number given where the numbers were coming from, which is something like 25 before. How are you thinking about these dispersion indices and what they're indicating about how, how this, this recovery is, is proceeding? No, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Because they're dispersion index, all they measure is how many more respondents are saying things are picking up versus things are declining. And so a measure of 50 means that there's the same number of people saying, you know, things are declining as things are ex expanding. And so we would expect during the major declines like we saw earlier this year is that that, that number would, would go heavily onto the side of everybody saying business is declining or labor is declining or whatever specific input. That, that's why you had the, uh, the ISM down into the 40s and 30s and some of the other PMIs across the world got into the 20s. And I think in Europe it got even into the teens because everybody experienced a decline. And so when you have a decline of that magnitude, what you should see then is the exact reverse, where once you reach the bottom, everybody who had just seen declines would also now start to see increases. It doesn't tell you about the magnitude of increases, but you should see a uniform cycle of increases, where in the PMI that would mean you go above 50 as far as you went below 50. 
And so we went way below 50. And now we've kind of trickled back up above 50 into some of them in the lower 50s, some of them in the mid 50s, uh, but no higher, which says all that says is that we hit the bottom and we're starting to come back up from it. But we're still likely closer to the bottom than anywhere close to getting back to even. And it's again, it's 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 the exact opposite as you would. Well, not the exact, but it's, it's not what you would want to see if you thought there was a robust recovery underway, because we would expect the ISM to be up in the 60s, if not the 70s, because that would say, yes, there's a uniform positive trend that everybody's experiencing, which is consistent with an actual recovery. To have only a small number of respondents say things are picking up after such a massive decline, to me, is a huge red flag that, okay, things are not going the way they're supposed to be going. Yeah, so let me take, let me piggyback on that with where your question was, you know, where are we going and how do we get there? Because if you encapsulate what you're saying into where we're going, it sounds to me like the real economy data are middling to weak. Uh, and and then you look at, say, initial jobless claims and they're a level above where you were in the great financial crisis. And at the same time, we have this uh, fight, this food fight in Congress uh, over uh, pandemic uh, relief assistance, whereas uh, when you think back to 2008, 2009, d- during this period of this recovery, we actually had m- a massive amount of stimulus going in. To me, it sounds like uh, you know it, it doesn't look so good for the future. But the real question I have is, okay, let's say that that's actually true. What do you need to see, both from the monetary authorities and other types of action uh, in the economy to power this forward in a way that relieves uh, the economy of, uh, of all this uh, uh, slack in the economy? Well, <laughs> I think what we need to see is a removal of so much hubris. <laughs> like you said, Ed, I mean, go back to 2008, 2009, there was this tremendous amount of quote unquote stimulus that didn't stimulate. And so the idea that we're going to stimulate our way out of this needs to be expunged from every expectation. The idea that, you know, and that belief, I mean, that's that's part of the problem that we're in now, because when everything was shut down back in, in, in the early part of the year, the idea was that, yeah, the Fed can help. The fiscal stimulus will help. We'll get things back up and running and on our feet so we can we can go through these drastic non-economic actions because we believe in the power of central banking and fiscal stimulus. Well, if they had known back then, which they should have known, that monetary policy is nothing but an empty toolkit and that fiscal stimulus didn't really work the last time around and really doesn't work any time. I mean, go back to Japan for 30 years. There's any number of examples where fiscal stimulus is not stimulus. If authorities had realized that and been, you know, had counted on that back then, maybe things would turn out differently. But the problem is now that they've happened, we can't go back in time and fix it that way. So, I mean, my point is, Thing, what we look at the, the real economic data and the real economic situation, what we keep seeing is these signs and signals that it's coming up short. It's coming up short. It's not going the way it's supposed to be. There's no V here. It's, 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 we're sticking closer to the bottom than getting back up. And by the way, that's the, that's the view in the bond market. That's why bond yields have remained so low, despite all of this talk about stimulus, all this talk about the Fed getting inflation. The bond market has completely shrugged it off and said, we don't see inflation. We don't see the V-shaped recovery. We're sticking to the safe and liquid instruments. And so what do we do about that? And I think the answer is <laughs> we got to do something drastic, which is to stop thinking of these things along the lines of stimulus and start thinking of things along the lines of the real world, which, again, this grand strategy review the Fed just undertook was the was the opposite of the, I mean that was even further into fantasy land into into fairy tale uh, to the realms of fairy tale. I mean we just talked about the the unemployment rate and inflation for example. Rather than realize that the participation problem might be a real problem in the unemployment rate, that's what led the Fed astray. These economists have said, well, no, maybe the Phillips curve is flattened out. So the economy really did get better. It just didn't generate the inflation that we expected it to generate. And so, I mean, what I'm saying is. They're doing everything possible so that they don't have to admit to reality. They're doing, I mean, all of this ridiculous, absurd explanations for avoiding the truth. And what I'm saying is that we have no prayer of a chance of getting back to anything close to normal so long as we have an official sector dedicated to fairy tales and fantasies. That's step number one. We got to get rid of people and start saying, look, 
You need to start to acting according to scientific principles, making observations and reading data and interpreting them in a realistic manner. That's just, I mean, that's just as a start. And once we start doing that, then we can start thinking about some of the bigger things, which is what do we do with a monetary system that is so complex and so crazy and so spread out all over the world? How do we try to get our hands around it and manage it? Well, I mean, that's a huge task, too. And that's another thing that has to happen, in my view, before we even think about recovering and getting into actual growth period. But I think those things will happen eventually. It's just how long do we have to do we have to suffer under the pretense of, you know, I don't even know what to call it anymore. This, you know, average inflation target nonsense, you know, stuff like yeah. that. And that's a, that's a whole nother can of worms. I mean, we could have a, a complete separate conversation about that. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, I don't know how much you get into the um, market uh, asset allocation and things of that nature. But, you know, it does sound like a, a bond friendly environment. What do you do in terms of your investments in this kind of environment? Not just bond friendly, but you know all those kinds of safety instruments too, like gold. I mean, gold has performed very well because it's acting in perfect, almost perfect concert with the bond market. I know people are interpreting gold as, oh, that's that's signaling the inflation that Jay Powell is talking about. It isn't, it's not, and it hasn't been. The rally in gold began at the same exact time that the rally in bonds did, and they have gone almost tick for tick with it matched each other for you know what is that now almost two years, two years of trading in tandem, and it, which makes sense because if you believe bond yields are going to low, interest you know safety interest rates are going to fall. You know, the biggest argument against gold is that it doesn't pay interest. And so the opportunity cost of holding the safety instrument is something like a U.S. Treasury. So if U.S. Treasury rates are going to go low and stay low, that's going to make gold even more attractive as a safety hedge. So gold and bonds are actually acting in concert with each other. And both of them are saying, we're not buying the central bank nonsense. Strategy, changes, grand reviews, all of this stuff Gold goes up, bonds go up in price, yields go down, and it's again, it's 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 one way in which you can play this this uh, less than satisfactory uh, scenario that we seem to be playing out that continues to show up in actual economic data as well as market prices. You know, I, I've heard that from uh, David Rosenberg. He calls it his, uh, you know, uh, bond, uh, you know, uh, precious metals barbell. And he talks about that, you know, you know, the the backward looking returns for that actually look pretty good for the last 12 months, the past 18 months, et cetera, uh, through all of this carnage. And the key factor there is the volatility is much lower in, 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 the, in those two. Now, what about uh, gold and volatility going forward? Um, uh, where do you think uh, do, do you think that precious metals in general, uh, you can continue to see that outperformance that we've seen? Or is that not something that is in your wheelhouse? Well, if you take a longer-term view, because, Ed, you're absolutely right. You have to point out the volatility. I mean, just go back to March, for example. What happened to gold and, and precious metals in March? They got pummeled. And there's a, you know, specific reasons for it as collateral, as collateral replacement in the repo marketplace and things like that. But you would expect that during these you know, uncertain financial times that we find ourselves in, that precious metals can be volatile. But yet overall, over the intermediate and longer term, we would expect them to perform well. It's just, you know, if you can't hold on to something that could be down sharply in short run, in short term periods, as gold was in 2008, in 2000, early 2009. I mean, gold, gold was all over the place back then. But for the entire global financial crisis, it ended up being higher and obviously a, a more effective hedge, which is as long as you can avoid looking at it sometimes in the short run over the over the long run gold bonds those things are working in tandem which says that you know you know we need to pay attention to the risks not the inflation risks but the deflation or disinflationary risks you know, uh, we have a ton of questions that come. I've I've gotten into the habit of just reserving the questions until the end, so that I'm I'm doing that now. Um, we what I'm going to do is I'm going to just let people know that you can start asking more questions. I'm going to start going through Jeff the questions that people have asked. And uh, maybe you can answer them one by one uh, until we run out the clock. I might have some of my own thoughts uh, to ask once you uh, once you get in there. But uh, let's let's see what the uh, the viewers have to say. Perfect. So the 
Yeah, the first one is from a guru who says, uh, what does Jeff think about Lacey's, he, I think he's talking about Lacey Hunt, Lacey Hunt's narrative on how central banks fool people into thinking that they're creating inflation. Is the whole market just operating on a greater fool theory? Yeah, I'm not I'm not good enough or familiar enough with Lacey Hunt's specific theory, but I, I believe just from what I know that uh, we, we we do believe, I mean, we think that we know that central banks operate in an expectations-based paradigm. So it's really, you know, it's as long as you believe the Fed is creating inflation or can create inflation, you'll act in a manner that will create inflation. But if you start to if you start to doubt that theory and think, well, you know, central banks can't do anything that they say they can do, which has been proven, by the way, over the last dozen years, then it doesn't work. It just it, it just falls flat, which is I mean, you know, we, we've heard about this grand strategy review all along. They, they, they made a big deal out of, of unveiling it and it just completely fizzled in the market, even the stock market. I mean, it just completely fizzled. This was a huge thing. This was going to push inflation. I mean, this was going to be the thing that finally broke the, the, the deflationary camel's back and market just kind of shrugged and said, you know, how stupid does Jay actually think we are? Maybe it's the exact opposite, given uh, what we see in the markets now, that this could be the beginning of a swoon in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because, I mean, you know, first rule of central banking is not to make things worse. And the way you think make things worse with monetary policy is prove that you're ineffective. And so if, if the market was saying, OK, we're going to give Jay Powell the benefit of the doubt, we're going to this is a grand strategy. It's been in the works for almost two years. They've got teams of researchers. They did, you know, 15 Fed listens events. There was this major conference. Maybe they're going to come up with something really awesome. And then he comes out with average inflation target and everybody went, oh, you know, it could have been it could have been that point where everybody gets disappointed and says, boy, we were really hoping for something there. And all they proved was that it's the same old Fed. Yeah, here's a question from Glenn Moore that's probably going to spur a question from me for you, Jeff. Here he says, okay. "Hello, Jeffrey. Uh, huge fan of your work. What resources, books or otherwise, would you recommend for me to better educate myself on the banking system? Sometimes I find myself lost in your interviews. I hope that this isn't one of them, by the way, Glenn. Yeah, uh, like Eurodollar University." Yeah, I wish I had an answer to that. It's a question I get asked all the time, but you have to realize that. Monetary scholarship and the monetary part of economics for decades has been simply pushed to the side. There has not been a lot of investigations into into how the monetary system actually works. I mean, you can see that embodied in you know in, in two thousand five and two thousand six when they discontinued M three. M three was the only right. thing that even peered into the real monetary system. And what they said was, you know, this is too complex for us. We're not even going to bother. And that, I mean, the central bank is supposed to do. They have all sorts of resources. And the fact that they were willing to just say, we're not even going to look into that space, it tells you a lot about the uh, the uh, lack of, of scholarship, the lack of writing, the lack of material about how the monetary system really works. And so I can't really recommend any sources other than, you know, to look at primary sources and data, take apart balance sheets, take apart, you know, the tick data, for example, and, and see how it works in your own in your own mind and how it works in your how it feels into your own framework, because there are so few really true monetary scholars who are willing to go into the details and the nitty gritty and make some sense of it. And even of the few who do and who have, they are always working from this, this mainstream conventional paradigm, which continues to put the central bank in the middle. And so even those who do look into the, the monetary shadows are confused by them because they're using the wrong, wrong worldview. So I wish I had a better answer. And I am working on Eurodollar University, as you pointed out, as a means to try to to fill in some of that, some of those blank spots. And, and you know, uh, when he mentions Eurodollar University, I think of Eurodollars and the Eurodollar market, and therefore I think of you know a huge uh, oversight in terms of the conversation that we have just had in general about you know what about the rest of the world what's going on in Europe and what's going on in Japan, uh, given the. Uh, outcomes that you've been talking about. Do you have any views specifically on those two regions? Well, because we're talking about a global monetary, so that's really what euro dollar means. It's, it's, it's dollars that exist outside the United States, but they also exist with the United States. So really, there is no U.S. economy or European economy or Japanese economy. It's really a globalized economy. And the euro dollar system is what ties it all together. And that's why for the last 13 years, as the euro dollar system has been a drag, it has been a drag on global growth. 
and it has continued to be a drag on global growth. That's why we had a downturn cycle from 2018 forward, which was supposed to be an upturn in acceleration. So even before we got to the COVID thing, before we got to the COVID break, the, the global economy was already in a downturn. And even more disappointingly, since March and since April, since the bottom, we've seen the trade statistics lag on the upside, which is a bad sign because it says, okay, the stuff that, that is supposed to drive global economy at the margins, which is global trade, that's having the most trouble come back. That's having the most experience with what I think is continued dollar, dis a high level of dollar dysfunction ever since March and April. And so when we look at the you know European economy versus the US economy, it's not like the US is recovering and Europe is not, or Europe is recovering and the US is not. It's always to which one is not recovering the least, you know, or which one, which one is not, which one is faring better, but not actually better. Right. And, and you know, you mentioned there uh, something that made me think about uh, the DXY dollar smile, uh, you know, because basically in March there was a rust of liquidity and the dollar went through the roof. But, you know, now we're looking at DXY like 92, 93. I think we're looking at the euro at 118, 119. Uh, where do you see those uh, those levels going? Yeah, I think people have overstated DXY. As DXY is, as my podcast co-host Emil Kalinowski always points out, has 58% the euro, which doesn't mean as much about the euro dollar system as it, I mean, it's confusing. DXY is more of a euro type of index rather than a euro dollar index, which is stuff we look at. So we look outside of the euro, we look outside of DXY into some of the other broader indexes, like the emerging market indexes, what you see is the dollar has, hasn't really moved at all. It has come down a bit from extreme highs, but it's still higher than it was back in February. And what that tells you is that, yes, as you, as you said, Ed, exactly right, we had a rush to liquidity, essentially a short squeeze in liquidity in March and into April, which shot the dollar higher. And the fact that it hasn't come down that much, especially against emerging market currencies, where dollar conditions are the most, po uh, the most powerful setting, the biggest factor in, 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 those, in those areas, that tells you that, number one, all these bank reserves, all this quantitative easing, all of this stuff the Fed has done, dollar swaps included, overseas dollar swaps included, haven't really accomplished much because the marketplace is still starved of dollars in those places where it's most uh, susceptible to that kind of a condition. And that's, again, it goes back into what we just said about global trade lagging. The reason global trade is lagging is because not just demand lower, but it's hard to get financing despite all of this monetary policy nonsense. So what we're seeing, again, in big picture stuff is the dollar is still unusually high. Bond yields are in low. Gold is up. Economic data is starting to come in really disappointing. And the stuff that we should be leading is lagging. And it adds up to the big picture, which is things are not proceeding the way they're supposed to be proceeding. At least, at least we have to admit that there are more difficulties there than we had, we, we had hoped for. Right. Uh, next question from Dwayne Pettis is uh, what do you make of the theory that the reserves that the Federal Reserve credits to banks when they do QE can't be spent or loaned? Does this mean the QE is actually deflationary? Oh, it's, I think QE is deflationary, but in a different aspect. And I know, you know, the idea of bank reserves has been a topic of conversation of late. And Brent Johnson has been the guy who's been talking about it. Um, Bank reserves are not money. They're simply an account at the Fed that banks hold and only banks can hold. And then it's up to the banking system to do something with them in some other fashion. It's not like you, you, if you want to convert them into you know, cash or something else, you have to go through a process to do that. Bank reserves are simply a ledger balance at the Federal Reserve. That's all they are. Now, they, they satisfy particular uh, internal requirements as well as statutory reserve requirements. But what we're really talking about with QE is excess reserve, because these are not statutory. And we're supposed to believe that these are a monetary equivalent. I mean, after all, you know, bank reserves are included in the monetary base. It's included right into M1 and M0. And, and so it looks like it should be money. But as we just said, you know, economists, central banks, and convention haven't really looked at the monetary system in many, many decades. So while everybody is assuming that bank reserves are equivalent to money, all they really are is a special form of account that a bank can hold at the Federal Reserve. That's all it is. And the way it's created is the bank swaps an asset it has on its books already with this asset the Federal Reserve creates. 
And so from the banking system's perspective, all they've done is trade one asset for another asset. That's it. And so if, if we want anything to happen from that going forward, it's up to the bank to do something else, not with the reserves, but do something else on its balance sheet. And if that bank is constrained in any way, it won't matter the level of reserves, which, I mean, look, you can go into the balance sheet, the, the you know the the, the 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 balance sheet data that the, each of these banks posts at, on Edgar at the SEC. Look it up. None of what happens is what has happened over the last dozen, thirteen years is you see the level of bank reserves swell on their balance sheet, but then nothing else has. And so it's really the monetary issue is a bank issue, not a central bank issue, and the whole. The whole you know, picture of bank reserves is a canard. It's a distraction. And it's an intended distraction. The Fed wants you to think that the bank reserves are money because then you'll think that it's printing money and then you'll start acting as if the Fed is creating inflation. And the, you know, I would say the last thing I'd say is that even the Fed knows the bank reserves are not money. You know, uh, I was going to say that uh, you, you're almost sounding like Warren Mosler there because I've talked to him about this. And I think he has two points that uh, echo with what you're saying. One is is that quantitative easing is an asset swap. You know, yep. you're swapping reserves for actually uh, interest-bearing assets uh, for the private sector, which we'll get into in terms of the deflationary aspects in a second. Uh, and then the second thing is that, you know, banks aren't necessarily reserve-constrained. They're more capital-constrained. And so when you talk about the constraints, really it's about whether or not they can find creditworthy borrowers to lend to, given their capital base. And I would say, but, just to interrupt, I would say they're, they're balance sheet constrained, which goes beyond capital constraint into volatility constraints and Vega and all these other right, really yes. weird um, ways that banks actually put together their balance sheet. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think they are balance sheet constrained. And so the level of reserves on their balance sheet is absolutely immaterial. And, you know, um, with regard to that asset swap that you were talking about, the way that I think about it is that, you know, if I'm getting an asset uh, reserves and I'm uh, and they're paying me for those reserves from a private sector an aggregate private sector perspective, I, we just have these dead assets now that are on the uh, on my balance sheet sitting at the Fed, whereas before I was actually getting interest. I, you know, the private sector was receiving interest from the government. So when you talk about deflationary, to me, you're robbing the, the private sector of uh, interest income. Uh, it's deflationary in that sense. I think that's right. And I think that's probably an unappreciated part of this whole equation is that, you know, what are we doing outside, you know, in a, in a very financial, purely uh, basic fundamental financial aspect is you're right, because as interest rates go lower, as the Fed continually spins its wheels trying to do the, trying to figure out what the hell's going wrong here, it's it's depriving the real economy of what used to be a very significant avenue of not just interest income, but also think about it as investment income, which spurred real economy investment. And so if all we're doing is we're all we're concerned about is generating the safest level of small amounts of, of interest, that is robbing the economy of, of a significant piece of its, its, its supposed or presumed vitality, which was necessary component. I mean, what John Maynard Keynes called the animal spirits. It's a necessary component to econo real economic growth. So, I, you know, Ed, I think you're absolutely right to bring that up. And, and, you know, interestingly, as you said that, I was thinking about the um, the strange term rehypothecation, and I was thinking about collateral, uh, you know, to the degree that you are making this asset swap, you're removing potential collateral uh, from the from the private sector and replacing it with assets that aren't going to be uh, rehypothecated or used as collateral or anything. Yeah, and I think the Fed made a huge mistake because if you go back to last September with the whole repo problem that they got completely wrong, remember what came out of that? Not only did they do these non-repo repo operations, which mimicked the repo trade, they also did not QE. Remember, they made a huge – this was not QE. We're, we're not doing QE. And the way they conducted not QE was by buying only treasury bills because that was what made it not QE in, in, the, Fed's, in the Fed's imagination. But in reality, that took – as you were pointing out, that stripped the repo markets of a huge amount of the best of the best quality collateral because the treasury bills are always on the run, whereas only parts, small parts of the bonds and notes are on the run. And on the run is what runs repo. You need the on the run stuff because that's the stuff that will always work in repo. And so heading into March, the Fed was doing this not QE, taking out the best of the best collateral. And then we run into this collateral problem and the Fed has stripped the, the system of some of the best 
uh, the stuff that would have meant that would have helped it work even better. And so I think, you know, they're not QE made a huge. made the global financial crisis number two worse than it probably needed to be because they went into the treasury bill market exclusively. And since then, they've noted how the treasury market itself bifurcated between on the run and off the run, but again, missing the significance of that in, in repo collateral. And now their QEs moving forward have been entirely in bonds and notes, avoiding the treasury bills and leaving them for the private market. And things have been a bit better in terms of collateral because of that. And so it's almost by accident that they have hit upon something that might have actually helped. And of course, the, the federal government has supplied an enormous amount of treasury bills to the <laughs> private market. But that still leaves these bottlenecks, these, these fault lines, these fractures in the system that are some things that, you know, uh, participants in the repo market have to be thinking about going forward because they have to be thinking to themselves, these are the idiots who stripped the, the uh, repo markets of T-bills last year. They probably could do something similar again if we run into the same kinds of trouble. It's amplifying things that are going wrong, which again, getting back to your major point about is QE actually deflationary? I think it is. If it's not always intuitively or, or straightforward, it does lead to further complications and problems when it's supposed to be the straightforward money printing inflationary engine. And in reality, it's it's at least at the very least, it's much more complicated. Right. Um, the next question we had here is from Tim. Uh, I think it's Carney. Uh, he is asking, is this recent inflationary impulse a product of the fiscal stimulus from the CARES Act or uh, perhaps the Chinese stimulus? If so, is it your opinion that it will fade if Congress doesn't do more? Thanks. Well, I'm not sure I agree with the the premise of the question, which is an inflationary impulse. I, I'm not, I know it's been talked about in the media, but I struggle to find anything in the marketplace. Again, we just we talked about dollars, we talked about bond yields, we talked about all the, the markets. I see derivatives, even LIBOR. You know, LIBOR curve is still st uh, quite steep and upward sloping. You get out to 12 months, it's still in the 40 basis points. That's not a good sign. And so I don't know if I see the inflationary impulse. I know it's been talked about. I know it's been reported in all the major financial media outlets. Maybe not Real Vision, but it was reported. It was reported everywhere else. And so I think pu the public has been given this, this idea that there's been an inflationary impulse, but I don't think it's actually a real one. I don't I mean, I don't see it anywhere. But to the larger question, I, I think it gets back to what we were talking about before, which is, you know, where are we going from here? You know, it, do we need another round of fiscal stimulus? And I, I know I don't know if we need it or not. But it, in times like this, where the, the way the world is going and, and really the massive amount of unemployment that we have, I surely wouldn't be against more aid to workers, as long as we understand that it's aid to workers and not stimulus. We're not stimulating right. the economy. We're just trying to help people get through the, these enormous negative consequences that were complete mistakes on the part of officials. And so I think, you know, if we look at it in terms of fiscal aid, that's probably the appropriate way to look at it. And I think you're probably going to see not only do we need more, I think we're going to ha we're going to see more. Right. But it won't be uh, stimulus and it won't be inflationary. It's right. Yeah. Um, so here's another question for you, Jeff, uh, from Bill S. So what other tools he has in uh, parentheses tools, if any, can the Fed use uh, to support asset prices? That's the narrative. Yeah, and I think it gets, you know, extending that narrative into something like stocks or corporate junk corporate bonds. Again, it's all expectation. So it's not really tools. You know, it's the empty toolkit where the, the real tool the Fed uses is actually, you know, Bloomberg and CNBC and the major financial press, because they're writing stories about how the Fed's being inflationary. And then people are, are reading those stories and believing this must be true. That's really the stimulus. It's not really anything tangible. And if you go back, you know, you think about the corporate bond market, for example, everybody's I mean, I've, I've seen all the stories about that, too. The Fed is the Fed is supporting the corporate bond market because it's buying up everything. Well, no, it's not really buying up everything. In fact, it has a predetermined list of bonds and ETFs that it's buying, issues that it's buying that a committee got together weeks in advance and decided we're going to buy a few issues. So well, the Fed is a drop in the bucket compared to the entire market. But so long as people believe that little drop in the bucket is a much bigger drop in a smaller bucket, then people will act as if it's actually stimulus and that the Fed is actually supporting the markets when they're really not. And if push comes to shove, that predetermined list and the bureaucracy and everyone else, and we get another bout of selling, 
that little drop in the bucket buying the Fed's doing is going to be nothing, nothing compared to the waves of selling. Because first of all, it'll be far more than the Fed's buying. And secondly, the Fed is not an institution that is set up to actually support marketplace. It's not like the, uh, the, the junk bond desk on JP Morgan or any other Wall Street bank that can react nimbly on a dime. It's not a dynamic institution that reacts to changes in the marketplace. And so if the market starts to go south, you know, are we going to are we going to wait a couple more weeks for the committee to get together and revise their buy list? I mean, <laughs> that's how the Fed actually works. And so what does the Fed have in its toolkit that can actually help the economy? The answer is they don't have anything. They have all of these schemes that are only designed to maybe come at it from a different angle, to get people to think that they're doing something by doing something, by preparing to doing something different. And so if things do start to go sideways again or start to go south again, what we should expect is them to come up with different ways to do to basically do the same thing but make it sound like they're doing something different, which is, I mean, average inflation target versus symmetric inflation target. That's all they did with that, too. It's all about making people think they're doing something different and more powerful. Well, you know, uh, to uh, give you more fuel on the, this hocus-pocus stuff, I'm thinking about quantitative easing in 2008 through, say, 2013. Because if you remember, there was a letter to the Fed about hyperinflation. A bunch of people signed on to that letter saying yeah, that— Yeah, the E21. You know, right. Quantitative easing, that's going to be hyperinflationary, et cetera, and so forth. And, and the dollar's you know, going to crash. They're going to crash the dollar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, of course, that never happened. Interestingly— uh, at that particular time, interest rates would, went up when the Fed did QE in response. But if you look at how people are looking at QE now, interest rates did not go up uh, by comparison. So what the Fed did when it was a new and novel tool in 2009 and 2010 is very different than what the Fed, uh, the reaction the Fed's getting in 2020. And so that's why the Fed's been forced to go to other tools, because they realize now that the QE toolkit uh, piece isn't going to work. Yeah, the market's onto it, right? And you're exactly right. When they first announced QE back in, you know, the first iteration, QE1, QE2, QE2 in particular, rates did rise a little bit because the market was was kind of like, okay, this is new. We saw a little bit in Japan, but, you know, let's give Ben Bernanke the benefit of the doubt. And if he says this will work, you know, maybe it will. So some of the market said, well, let's sell off in anticipation of this higher inflation. But after QE2, especially got into 2011 with the second uh, euro global dollar shortage, the market was kind of like, nah, we, we, this, this was all just smoke and mirrors, as you said, Ed, you know, hocus pocus. Uh, it really isn't anything real. And yeah, contrast those reactions. Back in 2010 and 11, we we're kind of willing a little bit to give the Fed a benefit of the doubt. Now, the market barely, the bond market anyway, the bond market barely even registers when they do even these grand strategy reviews. It's, it's all just, you know, we're tired of these games. Right. Um, I, we have a number of different questions, but I'm, I'm cognizant of the time here. So I'm gonna, only going to ask like one or two more. Okay. <clears throat> one question here, I think this is interesting. This is on everyone's mind these days, is um, what is your thinking on the possibility of negative nominal rates in the short term or the medium term? That's another potential uh, tool that the Fed could pull out. Yeah, I don't think it'll be a tool so much as it will be the Fed once again following the bond market. Because if we have another hiccup uh, anywhere, um, then what you're going to see is negative nominal treasuries, which we already did. I mean, the T-bill rates, especially in March, even some of the note rates got down into the to the negatives. So we've already seen nominal treasuries fall, fall below zero. And so negative, or negative uh, policy rates would simply be the Fed following what the bond market is doing. And again, it's, it's what we just talked about, the Fed trying to do anything to make it sound like it's actually doing something different and something powerful. And you know, people don't really understand what a negative rate is and what it means. But by and large, we've seen negative rates throughout Europe and throughout Japan, and they, they haven't done anything there either. So yes, central banks might attempt to do it. In fact, it's probably a likelihood, in my view, that we'll, we'll probably see negative nominal treasury yields at some point. But I think that's what comes first before you get the negative policy yields. Right. And, you know, uh, just uh, to piggyback on the conversation that you and I were having separately, but more explicitly is asked here, Jack Owen is saying, uh, do you believe there's heightened risk of another collateral bottleneck that you refer to going into the end of uh, Q3? 
Yeah, what I think what he's referring to is middle of September. When you look throughout, you know, financial history, especially the last, you know, even the last 20 years, there are these specific points in the calendar where we always cease to have problems. And one of them is the middle of September. Not only last year do we have that repo mess that happened right in the middle of September, you go back to 2008. When did Lehman Brothers, AIG, and Wachovia all fail? At the same exact point, the middle of September of 2008. And so as we're approaching the middle of September again, you know, I think a lot of people are, on, are, are waiting for, are we seeing the same kind of bottleneck appear? This liquidity shortage becomes even more acute and even more problematic. Given where we are in, the, in, the, in our situation since March, um, I think you have to be on alert. But right now, I mean, to be perfectly honest, what we have seen right now is that there's nothing that seems that nothing to make it seem like the middle of September bottleneck is going to be a big problem. As of September 3rd at, you know, what is it, 2, two o'clock in the, in, in the afternoon in the Eastern time, things could change from here. But as of right now, we're not seeing any big warning signs that say, OK, middle of September, get, you know, you know, batten down the hatches and get ready. That hasn't happened yet. Although, you know, with the stock market behaving the way it is today, you have to wonder, of, you know, what's tomorrow and the next day and next week going to look like? So it, it's a, it's still a possibility. You always got to pay, pay attention to mid-September, especially under less than ideal conditions. But up until this point, there really hasn't been any glaring uh, abnormalities that, that would make me think this one's going to be particularly bad, too. Well, Jeff, as always, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. We, we did a good full hour uh, today. Uh, I welcome you back again. If bad things happen, maybe sooner rather than later, so we can talk about that in terms of collateral. But uh, really enjoyed uh, picking your brain for an hour and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. It's always a pleasure, Ed. Thank you for having me. You bet. 